Howdy, this is Jim Rutt, and this is The Jim Rutt Show. Listeners have asked us to provide pointers to some of the resources we talk about on the show. We now have links to books and articles referenced in recent podcasts that are available on our website. We also offer full transcripts. Go to jimruttshow.com. That's jimruttshow.com. This week's guest is Morag Gamble, founder of the Permaculture Education Institute. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Jim. Lovely to be here. Yeah, this should be a very interesting conversation. These are, uh, you know, the kind of topics we've talked about various times with various folks, but uh, we're now talking to someone who's been doing it for quite a while. Uh, let's start with the word permaculture. Tell us where that came from and uh, what it means to you. Well, permaculture is a, a word that's been brought together from originally permanent agriculture, but over the years it's come to be known more as permanent culture because we realise that it's the whole systems approach to how we're living that helps us to, to bring out a, a regenerative world. So permaculture itself was uh, a term that was <clears throat> excuse me, coined by two guys, Bill Mollis and David Holmgren. Um, down in Tasmania in the 19, late 1970s. So they were exploring, like, what, is it, what does it mean to actually live a, at that time, I guess, they were calling it a sustainable way of life. How can we actually reduce humans' impact on the world, enable nature to, to flourish and create food in a way that is uh, going to help to feed the planet care for nature and make sure there's enough for other species and people everywhere. So they're the kind of three core ethics, earth care, people care and, and fair share. And what it looks like is different everywhere. Uh, Bill Mollis, and as soon as it really began, he started traveling the world sharing this idea. He traveled to countries everywhere. He traveled um, to refugee areas. He traveled into the heart of India and he traveled to New York and found ways to apply this ecological way of thinking to whatever context it was. And uh, so essentially permaculture, if you want to describe it in the simplest way, I think it's about designing for one planet living. Uh, how can we actually create human habitats that are, create well-being for people, well-being for the planet, um, that are nourishing, that are, that are about abundance, not about limit, and that are also beautiful. Uh, so I think it's about regeneration. It's about repair. It's about living well is what I really think permaculture is about. Yeah, the other thing I found that was interesting as I did a little reading for this uh, show, as I always do, uh, is that uh, the proponents have always talked about it operating at multiple levels. You know, the individual, the household, the community, the nation. Basically, everybody can play the game of permaculture. Yeah, look, I live in a in an eco-village that's been designed using the principles of permaculture. So it's a 640-acre property that 250 people live in and the whole place has the underpinnings of permaculture. I'm working at the moment with a, a woman who's doing a permaculture garden on the rooftop in New York. Um, I also work with uh, young people in refugee camps and they're applying permaculture in and around their huts and creating a community farm. Um, another project I was involved in starting was a, a city farm. And this city farm was designed on 
Permaculture Principles. It's a four-acre farm in the middle of Brisbane that integrates food and community, um, education, and has become an amazing hub for people who are thinking differently about what it means to live well uh, in urban environments. So, as you say, it can be applied to households. I think actually I even designed my work life around permaculture thinking because it just makes so much sense. It helps to create a level of balance, a level of uh, contribution um, to embed an ethical way and to really think about how to be of, I don't know, for me it's about being in service at the same time as designing uh, a way forward for other people. So supporting people to design their own places, supporting people to educate, supporting people to develop their own ecological enterprises. And so that's my work stems from entirely a permaculture approach. So my house, my garden, my work life, even the education of my children has emerged out of this. And not in any dogmatic way, I have to say that up front. It just feels as a natural way of being. It's kind of more of a, a philosophical approach to being. It's a and maybe it's a, a paradigm, a frame of reference. Once it kind of gets into your elbows and your knees, it just finds a way to flow and influence everything that you do. Some of the things I noticed also is that part of the path we pretty much have to be on or something very much like this, if we're going to learn to live within the constraints of what Mother Earth will actually tolerate, right? In one of your videos, you mentioned that the typical Australian, I'm sure it's even more so for a typical American, there's 8 billion Australians, uh, we need four planets to support them all. And that's not going to happen anytime soon. You know, more than just something that's nice and, a, you know, maybe a better way to live, isn't it really a uh, something fundamental that we have to do as a human species in this coming century? It's absolutely essential. And, uh, you know, like I said right at the start, I really describe now permaculture as one planet living. As you said, the ecological footprint studies are showing, yeah, four planets. I think this is another uh, way of understanding it that helps us to make sense of, of what's going on as well, that uh, say, for example, in Australia, our overshoot day, meaning if you look at the whole year, at what time in the year is it that you've actually used up your ecological budget and that everything that you do from that point onwards is eating into future generations' capacity for well-being, um, other species' capacity for well-being? Here in Australia, it's March, end of March. So pretty much by the first quarter, that's it. Everything we've done is is chewing into future capacity and the ability for, for nature to sustain itself or for the planet to be livable over a period of time. So, yes, it is absolutely imperative. What I've tried to do over the years and what I think is important, though, is to create such a beautiful alternative and explain and show, demonstrate in, in all different contexts how possible it is, how easy it is, how wonderful it is. <laughs> I mean, you know, um, well, I shouldn't say wonderful necessarily because, you know, it, it comes out in all different ways. If we talk about it just as being, it's absolutely imperative and I think we scare people. I believe that it's imperative and absolutely essential. But I also worry about frightening people too much. I know we need to speed things up. But I sometimes get to the point of worrying that if we frighten people too much, that they won't act. 
there's some real truth to that. And the other is that, uh, and this is the hard part to communicate. I'm, I'm not sure I know how to do it, but you probably have got a better sense of it, uh, which is the sense that we're not really giving anything up if we do this correctly. Uh, you know, we're burning a lot less energy. We're consuming a lot less materials. Uh, we're destroying a lot less soil every year. But that does not mean our lives that's actually lived are going to be any less wonderful. In fact, they might be more wonderful. Well, entirely. And this is really the stories that, that need to be told. Because everywhere I go, um, before the COVID lockdown, my, my world was, um, I've worked with permaculture in communities everywhere, from, like I was saying, refugee camps to villages in the Himalayas to communities in Indonesia and also throughout um, various parts of Europe and around Australia. And wherever I go, I find people doing this. And they're doing it because they've experienced how much richness that they get from this, how much joy. You know, they talk about having experienced depression or loneliness or anxiety or fear and lack and um, just an absolute despair around where things are going, the meaninglessness of lots of things that were going, the inequities that they would see the purposelessness of so much and when they experienced this other way of where the richness is in the connections and the relationships that are formed within a community within a community of practice within what well, within your own uh, ecological system i mean one of the one of my biggest joys that gives me so much happiness is waking up in the morning and looking out and noticing a little joey hopping out of the pouch of its mother for almost the first time and just finding its legs or, or noticing how my son responds to watching that and feeling a great sense of joy of that connectedness or hearing the rainbirds come in, noticing that it's the shift in season and the rainbirds have entered into, they, they come to this particular tree in my garden every year and I know that that's the start of the rainy season and just feeling that deep sense of connectedness and, and also being seeing how, how other people around are responding to that, and that sense of joy and the ease and feeling comfortable in their own skin. And uh, even though maybe you don't necessarily have that much, there's a sense of joy that's emanating. So how is it that we're measuring what is a good life? How are we measuring what is success? How do we measure what is appropriate development? And stepping back and, and taking a, a different look at that. But I see this everywhere. I see this in all the communities I go to. And I, I remember talking to many, many classes that I've said, talked to, that every, you know, every corner of the world I go to, I see this. And so how I describe permaculture is, is it's a mycelium network that is reaching out across the globe, connecting people underground. It's not very visible necessarily, but it's absolutely there. I think in the last 30 or 40 years since permaculture has been in existence, it's reached just about every country in the world. And so many people know about it. Many of them are practicing it intensely. Many of them are just weaving it in some way. Many people, of course, are just doing this and it's not even called permaculture. It just is for them. And so I think, it, you know, the, the term permaculture can be quite enabling when people experience it because they think, oh, great, there's a term for all of that that I've been thinking about and that I've been doing and it connects me with this 
global network of people who were also thinking like that. And I've, oh, I found a group of people that I can explore this with. So I'm finding that it's incredibly hopeful, actually, because there is this informal network without a leader. There is no leader of this movement. It, uh, there are ambassadors, maybe we could call them. There are educators, demonstrators, um, activators, people who kind of catalyze action. But it speaks for itself. When it works well, you don't need to convince people of it because, it, you know, if you see a farm that's run with these principles as opposed to a conventional one, you just need to look at it and you can see the difference. Or if you look at, a, you know, a community garden, for example, that's in this beautiful food forest and the, and the amount of people that are drawn into that and to experience it and just to be there. One of the things that I remember about, um, the city farm that we started, oh gosh, over 25 years ago now in the city, was that people would come in and, and they would just take this great big breath out. They would sigh. They'd say, oh, this feels like home. Or this is such an oasis. I never knew this was here. There was this sense of coming home. I mean, really, there was like road zipping around, there was flyovers, there's trains, there's all sorts of things going on around. But enter into that space and there was a sense of peace. And it was interesting too, noticing there that other things happen. So it is about the food, it's about the energy systems, it's about having a less of an impact. But there's this healing that happens. Now, some people who would come down, I, I remember this one guy in particular who came down to the farm. He had this incredible stutter and it was really challenging to understand what he was talking about. But after being there for a while, because people, when they came into that, they slowed down. They slowed down and they listened and they took the time to pay attention. I don't know when it actually happened, but after about six months, we were having a conversation and I all of a sudden realised that his stutter had completely gone and he became the person who was doing the tours around. He invited the Lord Mayor to come in. He organised Indigenous concerts. There was something that happened simply by taking the time to notice and so this is there's such a healing capacity on people, but also on the environments around. If we stop to notice what's going on in the soil, for example, we notice whether it's alive and thriving or whether it's really struggling. It's the time taken to pay attention, to care about the qualities of it, not just the quantity of it, like focusing on not on the yield, the maximising yield, but the health of the system as a whole or the health of that community. And so the focus and the attention and the what you consider to be working well, uh, like the measures of success, are completely different. And it's hard to argue those things. You know, I don't have the data or the facts. I have the stories and that's what I can share. And that's where I, I really loved coming in contact with uh, people like Nora Bates and with Warm Data and it's what happens in the in-between, in the liminal space, what is the conditions for those changes to take place or for that healing to happen or for that new perception to be held? What is the richness of, and, the, and the texture and the aesthetic of that? And uh, so there's new language that uh, her work in Warm Data has brought to, to how I feel like I'm able to communicate this work. Yeah, Nora is wonderful. She, she's been on the show before and we've collaborated with her uh, for a, a, quite a while and she's uh, part of our uh, Game B effort. She sees something that few of us see, I guess is the way to describe it. Well, we've just started collaborating 
the very first of the 10,000 Communities Project is something that I've been working on with her. Um, so her 10,000 Communities Project in collaboration with the Club of Rome is uh, about supporting communities everywhere to be having these conversations. And so on a, on a recent Warm Data training program, I managed to connect with her in one of her last face-to-face ones she was able to do before the lockdowns. And um, I took my daughter as well. So my 14-year-old daughter, she was 13 at the time, became a Warm Data Lab host as well, and my husband. So all of us went together and and did it as a family, which was just absolutely brilliant. Anyway, so I was there as a support person in her first online training, and there was a a man there from, um, from a refugee camp in Uganda and as we were talking about things, we started talking about permaculture and the perma youth programs that are rippling out with the work that my daughter does. And, and he said, this is exactly what we need in our refugee camp. I'm trying to work with young people to, you know, with education, with health and, and you know, looking at what we can do here. And he said, this sounds exactly what we need. So we've just actually finished last week the first program. So the Warm Data Community crowdfunded to support um, some teachers that I've been working with in, in Uganda to, to travel over to the refugee camp and run this youth uh, program. Well, actually it was programmed for women and, and youth and farmers. It was all different, so it expanded from the youth. There were so many people who wanted to be part of it as, as soon as it started. We are already planning the next one. So they were learning about ways to, um, you know, create things like compost toilets and and compost systems and using grey water to then grow food and and get perennial food systems and mulching and transforming the landscape from being just monocultures and and dirt into something that is thriving and alive and able that they're able to actually. Uh, use the resources that are around them to transform these spaces. And while in these refugee settlements they may be sent home tomorrow or they may be moved on somewhere else. Most of them, however, have been there for a very long time. So Paulino and, and, and many of the other people who we work with in refugee settlements have been there for a decade. So you get sort of to a point, they say, where you just think, well, I'm, I'm here, so, so I've got to do something. So even if you learn permaculture and you move on soon, you have the skills to be able to look differently at where you go back to to rebuild or maybe to have the the eyes to look differently at where you're going to to be able to transform that. And in the meantime, creating possibilities for nourishing food, for reducing sort of puddles of that are mosquito uh, create mosquito problems of creating cooler habitats with more trees and and life in it and creating projects where people come together just the depression is absolutely rife in places like that and also with all the schools that are locked down um, throughout Kenya the permute programs that have been happening too have been providing living learning labs where they give young people a, a place to actually continue their learning in a really integrated way, in a systems way. So I wonder actually when schools do open, what's going to happen because they've sort of had a perspective on a different way of learning now too and connecting globally with a community of youth um, learning permaculture. So, yeah, wa- warm data, permaculture, refugee camps, all starting to find uh, this connective thread and uh, I'm seeing 
teachers that are learning there now in the refugee camps going to different parts of camps or to other camps now to ripple this out. So it, it has a life and it's it started to uh, to myceliate and it's absolutely amazing. I've been receiving on, on this WhatsApp feed photographs of uh, there was this group of people from with seven different languages hardly uh, you know they're not a language to share amongst them but this absolute joy they were dancing and singing together they were building and making things together there was this transformative thing that was happening and I Paulino who held this uh, event was just saying he's not seen anything like that for before and people are just saying they want to do more of that So this is kind of that invitation. What is it about the aesthetic of that way of doing things that becomes so attractive that instead of running a class and abouting about things as Nora talked about, that people are thrown into the soup of it and having an experience, an immersion of something that is really about care and respect and about the opportunity to design spaces yourself. So I guess in a way it's there is a, there's an empowerment there. Uh, there's a, a self-determination, a self-organization that is unlocked in this potential. Yeah, and this is also where the culture part comes in, right? That uh, what's happening here, if it's you know done fully and completely, is that we're actually building, you know, back in the 60s, they talked about the counterculture, but that basically meant having long hair and wearing blue jeans and smoking a little reefer maybe. Uh, but this is a much bigger counterculture. This is learning to say no to the game of status through material possessions, right? And uh, to find a new form of value in terms of your relationships, in terms of conviviality, which you know used to be uh, one of the core values of human life uh, amongst indigenous people for sure, but even European people not that long ago. This is not just a little turn if this is done correctly. And what I find interesting too is that, say, for example, though, in in these refugee camps, they don't actually have anything already. It is about meeting basic needs but in a completely different way. But what I have noticed too is that, so I run lots of online connections and programs with different people and uh, from perma-youth to permaculture education and permaculture business thinking uh, masterclasses and and I get people to kind of come together and talk and I offer anyone who lives in a refugee camp or or in any of those sorts of communities can access all of this stuff for free there's full scholarships to anyone who wants to join from and they've got the data and and I try and support them with that as well and so they come in and I ran this program yesterday uh, and I remember someone actually saying so there's these refugees joining in people who were trying to start up local permaculture enterprises. And this one woman said, I'd been thinking for such a long time about feathering my own nest and finding ways just to make sure I was okay. And when I'm in conversation with people like this, who are on the other side of the world, who are stuck in these places, it opens up my mind of really what the possibilities that I can be doing. And that by just thinking of feathering my nest is really a limiting factor that I can take care of me and my family, but I can simultaneously take care much wider. And that in actual fact, it doesn't split it. It's not like, it's not like there's a, there's a pie. And when you chop it up, there's only a certain amount. You know, it's like when you, when you have children, 
you know, so you have one child and there's, there's so much love and then when you have the second child, it's not splitting love, you just get more love. <laughs> it's a bit like that with care. Like you can care about you, you can care about your family, you can care about your local environment, but you can simultaneously care about people elsewhere. And so it's this expanding field of care and love, which sounds a bit woo-woo, but it absolutely is kind of at the core of this, I believe, that when we can expand our sense of self into that space of caring about what is happening to other people in other places and, and other species, then that brings back a level of richness and, and joy in our own daily lives, in our own daily places, uh, in our own um, daily work as well. And so this woman's reflection on the fact that simply by connecting with people in other parts of the world and finding ways to support their work too. So, you know, we have these things like 1% for the planet on, and all that. So what I often recommend to people as we think about well how can we we have one third that's work for learning one third that's work for income and one third that's work for community and sharing and and that can be too also in the you know why why limit it to one percent where we could maybe give away half would that really make that much difference i don't know maybe the more abundance that we give away the more abundance that we create coming from a perspective of abundance as opposed to limit i think we can generate something quite other and this one third one third one third was actually something that I was inspired to consider and really find how I could lean into it when I was I've visited lots of different eco-villages around the world as I said I've lived in an eco-village for a few decades now and I'm fascinated by what other communities are doing elsewhere and one of the projects I visited in in uh, Italy and I think you might have talked about this on a previous show was Dumb and Her now, Dumbledore is a fascinating place in lots of different ways, but I was particularly fascinated by their economic model, the way that in your work, your daily work pattern, as I said before, it's this one-third of it is dedicated to, to learning. So if you were wanting, for example, to become uh, someone who did beautiful mosaics, you know, like an artist, you would get sent to go and learn with the best master in mosaic art that they could find. And then you would come back and then part of that would be doing mosaics for income, but then you would also spend time teaching that to other people and doing it as community service in their community buildings and their their underground amazing temples and things. So you had one-third for learning and sharing, one-third for work and one-third for community service. And I just found that to be such a beautiful balance because I think we tend to get out of whack with our work-life balance. And also just that there was that a broader sense of community and, and family. The work week was shorter. They'd say, okay, you only work four days a week. And then on the fifth day of your week and within your broader households, you would be caring for other people in the family or community or out in the gardens. And so there was this opportunity to really value too the work, the homework, and not put that as something that's just uh, undervalued, unpaid that you do around the edges. Another place that really inspired me was living in Ladakh when I was there in my 20s with uh, volunteering with Helen and Orberg Hodge. And we started this program up there way back in the mid-90s. It was a farm stay program where it, it actually started because there was a this very lovely old English woman who came in and said, 
well, I could organise something to teach your ladies how to speak English, if you like. And it was all done from a good heart. But I remember the ladies looking at her and said, meh, how about you gather some people together and send them out to our villages and we'll teach them how to speak Ladakhi and live Ladakhi. And so this is kind of the foundation of, of the Farmstay program. And um, my husband and I were the guinea pigs of this program. And so we went out and lived out in this village that was only accessible by walking up through these valleys. And there there was this, you know, the short work year because it, the rest of it kind of went into massive lockdown you know eight months of the year were locked down with with uh snow everywhere and ice so the the main part of the work here was in this active time of four months and people were busy but it wasn't it wasn't busy and hard it was you would get up and you go out and do some work and then you'd sit down and have your breakfast and then you'd do a little bit more and then there'd be morning tea or actually there'd be pre-morning tea then morning tea and then lunch and everything was around the food and the coming together and the songs and there was the old people and the young people and everyone was there together in these extended families all the generations but in a steady pace that integrated music and family and song and sitting under an apricot tree just having a munch on the most magnificent apricots I'd ever tasted and then the whole process of making bread from scratch, like, you know, actually grinding the grain by hand, singing to the yaks as they crush the grain off the stalks and milking the yaks to, and then going and making some butter and yogurt from the yak milk, which would be what would rise the bread. And, and I remember eating this piece of bread that was cooked in a yak dung fire, thinking, I don't think we've got it right at all in our society. I know how to go to work in a job that I didn't like to get some money to go to the shops in a fossil-fueled vehicle to go and buy some plastic-coated industrial bread containing I didn't know what and not be nourished by that. And I didn't even know how to make bread at that point. And so I was sitting there eating this piece of bread thinking, but I feel much happier this way. <laughs> There's some deep joy of the deep connections with the food, with the community, with the place, with the water, with the animals. You know, you could actually tell there what phase of farming they were at because you could hear the different songs. So when there was this particular song as you were singing to the yaks, a song of thanks as they were separating the grain, and then further down the grain was separated and people were starting to thresh and there was a whistling song that went with that as the, you'd thresh the grain. And, but you had, to, you had to whistle because if you opened your mouth and sang, you'd get a, a gob full of, of the chaff. And so there was a song about that and there was a whole lot of people sitting around singing with them too and, and you'd just keep taking turns. There was this sense of joy in the work and in the place. And, you know, the monks would come down and get involved at that time too. So there was a, you know, a practical spirituality element of it too. Anyway, so a long story short, you know, I came back home and thought, there's got to be a different way. How does, how does that way of life and that way of thinking, I mean, after spending a whole lot of time at Schumacher College, learning with people like Fritjof Capra, living in Ladakh, experiencing this deeply connected way of life and then coming back to Australia saying, hmm, I wonder what it is that life could look like that had that deep sense of ecological paradigm at its heart and had that feeling of deep connectedness. And the closest thing that I've been able to find that connects all those things together is permaculture. Yeah. And so coming from that 
systems thinking background and coming from living in traditional communities like that, it just feels right. It seems to make sense. That doesn't just make sense. It is the sense that you feel when things are right. There's something that happens inside, in me anyway, if I start to head in directions that seem to be wrong, I feel a sense of pain in my body. Like It's kind of like an indicator. I remember thinking, okay, well, I'll, I'll, I'll go and do an environmental job in the government, in state government. And I thought that was going to be what my life was meant to be about. I'll help do ecological protection work. And I remember just walking into this 20-story building downtown, having hopped off the train and I did it for a few months and I, inside I was just dying. I don't know, I just didn't feel like I was abouting about what needed to happen but not actually doing it. And I think it really made me realise when there was all these reports, beautiful reports that were written about all the great stuff that needed to happen but none of it was happening. The ideas were there but the action wasn't. So I decided to throw throw myself into actually creating projects where people could see it, taste it, touch it, feel it, immerse themselves in it, have an experience. And I think that was too an inspiration from spending time at Schumacher College. I was there at Schumacher College in England when it was, gosh, in its very early days, right in the first year, I think. I spent um, time there probably about a year with people, like I said, Fritjof Capra and Helena Norbert, Hodge came there and Vandana Shiva and Arnie Ness talking about deep ecology and Christopher Day talking about building with soul and was looking at all different dimensions of life. And Satish Kumar, who who founded the college, um, was there and he would be you would be immersed in cooking with him and meditation and I would there'd be music soirees and I I learned how to paint there and, and wood carve. We did yoga and meditation. There was this living learning community and Having come out of university into that environment, I realised that actually education needed to happen completely differently as well. That what I learnt in that year there intensely was profoundly life-changing and has actually stayed with me until this day as a point of inspiration and has offered such um, clear direction on on ways to live and ways to learn and and even ways to raise my children. So I have three kids. One of them just goes to the little local school down the road but the and is asking to be homeschooled. Uh, probably next year he will. But the other two, what we call free learners, they don't have a curriculum, they don't have any assessments, they don't have any anything that they're expected to do, but what they create and what they produce is absolutely amazing. And it's through this um, being connected and, and finding passions and purpose. And what I've noticed actually is during the lockdown that a lot of people have been exploring different ways of, of educating because we've had to. And the, the number of people heading towards this type of education is absolutely going through, through the roof. But in many places it's illegal still. Like Germany says homeschooling is illegal. I'm watching as my daughter now. I've created this thing called the Ethos Fellowship, uh, and just informally. So these, I have a group of young people around the world that work together with with Maya, my daughter, and they they're learning directly with Fritjof Capra. So he comes, he, they're joining his online course, and then they they have meetings with him and chat about everything 
they they've connected in with Nora. So they've done uh, Nora's online warm data course and then they have meetings with Nora. But then they also run all their own stuff. So, for example, the young, this young group of warm data teens now meet up with there's people in, in Europe and Africa and Asia and Australasia, the sort of New Zealand, Australia, and there's this one group that actually joins in with them to have these conversations about what is emerging, what are you attending, uh, you know, what are the things that really matter in the world? There's this group that joined in from Liberia and it was kind of a bit of a mind-blowing moment for everybody. This group came in and it was kind of a bit hard to understand them to begin with because they were talking in Liberian English. But what I heard was them saying they were talking about how he said, my sister was was raped and killed and started talking about all this and I could see you know, these young protected kids from different parts of the world just being in absolute shock. And we went into this moment of absolute chaos. Well, actually, a few weeks of chaos, trying to work out how, how to make sense of, of what was going on. Young people here realising the difference of their lives to the lives of other people and the trauma that the young kids in Liberia experiencing. And one of the things that Nora talks about too is that the sharing of that trauma, I was worried that it was going to traumatise these kids. What it did was actually not traumatise them. It created a depth in their compassion and their awareness and their openings. And from that moment onwards, I think they grew up about five years in that time in a, in a really good way. I was worried it was going to be traumatising and harmful and difficult to deal with. But their compassion to open up to people and to bring in all different ideas and to hold space for people who are in trauma. The reason I'm mentioning this trauma is because wherever you look now, there are people who are being blocked for moving forward to a different way by being stuck in a space of of being traumatised whether that be through displacement through you know being as as a refugee or or you know personal trauma and so this holding space for people who are in trauma and finding ways to practically open up the possibilities for moving forward uh, i work now with a woman based in london but her work is in kashmir and as we know you know kashmir has had decades of trauma and she says that it's really hard actually when you're running programs there for much to happen because she said it takes three or four times for people even to hear what it is you've said because the trauma is so thick. It's like this thick soup around everyone that is really hard to penetrate. But she's finding through permaculture, through this, through healing the land, through connecting with land, through connecting with community that she's able to use a trauma-informed approach to permaculture to actually open up this. So with warm data and permaculture, through this richness of the connectedness, through the depth of the caring, through the time that people take to listen, deeply listen to where other people are at and to feel into that. It's like I can harps back to what I was what I'd noticed at the city farm 20 odd years ago, that creating the spaciousness to be able to feel, to care, to notice others, other species and what's going on around us seems to be feel to me to be at the core of what's going on and within our busyness everywhere it's kind of one of the things that falls off first 
but perhaps it's one of those things that we need to put right back in the core. And finding that spaciousness for ourselves, you know, some people do do meditation. I, I go for a walk along the river when I feel my my brain starting to fog through the through the overwhelm of the multitude of projects that I take on. I just head on out down to the river and feel that freshness and the spaciousness comes back into as I walk. Every step I walk just brings more spaciousness. That's my thing. And people find ways to do it in whichever way. But I think finding a practice that brings that spaciousness back so you have that capacity to expand into that field of caring. We need to give more value to than perhaps we currently do. Yeah, those are certainly all critical things. You know, what we were talking about before is the culture change that, you know, we have to come to value things like that rather than the, you know, the fancy car, the big house and the expensive clothes. And that's a mission of the sort you're talking about where people get exposed to these things. They start to see there is a better way. But at the same time, we also have to, what's the word, scale up some of these uh, regenerative and uh, permaculture agriculture. If we're really going to feed a world of 8 billion people, half of whom are urban, uh, one of our neighbors here is actually in the forefront of scaling up permaculture, a guy named Joel Salatin. Do you know, do you know about him? Yeah, sure do. Yeah, he lives just a, a few miles from us. Been to his farm many times, uh, good friends with him. A really, really interesting guy who has you know, taken the idea of permaculture and has come up with a whole series of systems. And we'll talk soon about systems thinking and how important it is to, to really make in permaculture scale. And he now operates a good-sized farm that makes real money and feeds lots of people and at the same time is building soil at a remarkable rate, providing you know uh, clean food to thousands of people. Uh, and has really taken these ideas and taken them to the level where, uh, you know, they could actually be done by lots of people. And there are now people who are uh, taking his methods and deploying them all around the United States and I suppose other parts of the world. I think what you're saying is absolutely right. And the model of a smaller scale farm than the massive farms is actually the trend that we need to, to head in. Um, we have so much degraded farmland everywhere around the world. And these regenerative methods uh, the ecological restoration methods is what's needed to bring these back into life. And we can do these in and around urban, peri-urban areas as well as the, um, you know, not too far. You know, I think the closer we can bring these farms into the into the cities, the better because that means that we're not having to transport the food such long distances. There's a group here in Brisbane called Food Connect and they've created this incredible model that I think is works really well. So what it does is it it creates this local food system. And I know and I know what Joel does is he's got lots of different enterprises within his own farm and and, and connects with other farms too. And Food Connect and Joel Salatin are, are good friends as well. So and he's come and spoken at their Food Connect shed. So what they do is uh, in the city they've created this hub, this sustainable food hub. And they actually even bought this building, but they did the they bought the building differently. They instead of it being uh, bought outright and they own it, they put it into community ownership. Uh, so embedded that principle of community ownership there, and that it was um, what instead of being shareholders, we we were careholders. And interestingly, ninety five percent of the careholders are women. So we each put in somewhere between five hundred to ten thousand dollars. 
and within a space of a few months raised $2 million to buy this building that this sustainable food hub now actually operates out of it. I should actually say regenerative food hub because that's what it is. But when it started out, it was originally called a sustainable food hub. Uh, So within this space, they bring in uh, foods from farms that are within a 100-kilometre radius and they have very deep and close relationships with all of these farms. And they have what they call city cousins and country cousins. So the city cousins are the ones who, when the food comes in and it gets boxed up, they take it out and distribute it to people in the urban areas. The country cousins actually gather the food from the various farms and bring it in. Now, there's a close relationship between all of these farms and all of the people who live there. There's relationships. They go out and help work. They might go out and help stay. Um, they meet each other at different events. What they notice in during the lockdown when uh, people weren't going out to the shops, that this business quadrupled. And even when people could start go back to the shops, it still was tripled. So the resilience and the robustness of these food systems in challenging times has been shown. And also the fact that these local farms um, have the capacity to have people like these city cousins to come out and help them if they need help, if they can't get workers from elsewhere. There's this incredible system that is is working. So many more of those. There is so much space in and around the cities that is just used as maybe hobby farms or not even just abandoned land. Uh, we've, we've been talking a lot about the possibilities of creating urban farmland trusts. So within the city that's not far from me, we have things that are, we have bushland trusts. So part of, there's a levy that gets charged to every resident within this city. And the city is is massive. You know, the city, it's one of the biggest city metropolitan areas in the world in terms of its size. It's not in terms of population, but in terms of size, it's a mega council. So within the within the city of Brisbane, which is a massive area, uh, it's a mega council, they charge money from, from the residents to put towards bushland trust to create more land for native areas. So we're, what we're currently working on is actually getting a levy to be able to buy up land that could be put for regenerative farming. And so this campaign that we're working on is going with that idea that we need to be thinking about well, where is our food coming from in the next for the cities in the next 10, 20, 30 years? Who are the farmers of the future? It's going to look completely different. So we need to be protecting and maintaining uh, land that can feed the cities. Uh, also, Melbourne, uh, down in the south southern part of Australia, is completely looking at the way that it manages its water so that they've done mapping of the whole city, looking at where where the wastewater goes, where it gets treated, how it can be treated into water that can be put directly back out to farms and then creating massive zones there of urban farming. And so the whole of the metropolitan area of Melbourne is looking at this with a serious lens of thinking about the future of food in the cities. So I don't think that the large expansive farms necessarily are going to be the ones which are feeding us. It's these smaller localised networks of farms where people are regenerating the soil through the connections with the urban metabolism, which I think is one of the key things there. Um, But also I think what we need to be really thinking about is transforming the way that we think about food too. Probably in your country it's similar in terms of food waste, 
Uh, apparently in our bins we still have 40% of food that gets thrown into bins which is biodegradable, which could actually be composted. Some countries I know and some cities have actually made it illegal and you get fined if you put food scraps into into the bins. Uh, That might help to actually transform this, but there is still so much food that can be transformed into uh, food for the soil. You know, much, much of the food that's grown is wasted, the figure of 40% I think is, is really underestimated. If we actually think about how much food is grown, and you experience this when you have a garden or a farm yourself. You see food everywhere. So, for example, in my garden out here, I'm looking at it now, there's some self-seeding pumpkins that have taken this beautiful patch. And so when you look at it, you know, I, I often have groups come out here. Um, I, I run permute camps and school camps for kids as well, and and I say, oh, where can you see some food out here? And, you know, see what you can find that you could harvest for lunch or dinner. And no, I can't see any food. And then I start to unpack what we see out there. So a pumpkin, for example, a pumpkin vine, every single part of a pumpkin is edible. The pumpkin flesh, the pumpkin skin, the pumpkin seeds, the pumpkin vine shoots, the flowers, the leaves. You can steam up the leaves for a couple of minutes and they're beautiful wraps that you can wrap around rice and vegetables all of it's edible, but yet pretty much everywhere that gets thrown away. Same with sweet potatoes. We we grow the sweet potatoes in farms and then they use um, chemicals to kill off the leaves and then so it's easy to harvest the root. But in actual fact, the leaf is more nutritious than the root itself. So we throw away or we kill or we poison much of the food that's grown. And then there's all the you know, you look around in the in-between spaces. So if you look at the liminal space of your garden, you find those unexpected plants that could be a weed or it could be a self-seeding coriander or a, or a parsley that's popped up. Or And there's all this extra food. You know, every now and then I find patches of turmeric popping up. Or it, when you create this regenerative garden space where the soil is alive and the, the seed bank is within your soil and the and the perennial plants are finding their own niches. In a small space just around your house, there is a remarkable amount of food. You know, with a couple of chickens and a perennial garden, you can actually grow much of the food that you need on a daily basis. And then we're part of collectives. Uh, so we have a little collective dairy going on here, which we were, this morning was our morning. So once every fortnight, it's our turn to go and milk the cows. And uh, so there's only a few cows and that's enough. We just need it. We've got a little small paddock with a few cows and that gives us enough milk uh, to make our cheeses and our yogurts and, and have milk for a couple of weeks. And every other day it's someone else's turn that comes back around to us. This way of growing and seeing food differently, seeing our plants differently, thinking differently about how we're sourcing our foods, thinking differently how we relate to the farmers and create networks of those farmers or even contribute to the to the buildings which facilitate the trade and supply of that food. It's, it's actually entering into a deeper and closer relationship again with that rather than just seeing food as a commodity and, and looking at, you know, the parts. I used to be a food politics lecturer at um, Griffith University and I remember talking about at one point about um, chicken because, you know, often in a, in the Western world, in the privileged world, we eat the chicken breasts is the main part that people want. But what about the rest of the chicken? What happens to that? 
And so the rests, they're called, um, often get frozen and sent over to poorer countries. So then they get frozen chickens that have been grown in ways that are not necessarily the most healthy way. So the chicken that you would get from those would not be the same quality as the, the wilder versions of chicken that they would be growing themselves. Uh, so they get an inferior product and their own chicken enterprises get disrupted. And therefore, you know, the manures that they get from their chickens that they would have grown isn't there to be able to put back into their food system. So it's a disruption of the whole system and starts this unfolding and we all become consumers of poorer products. It's throwing ourselves back into the mix of that and being part of the food growing. Um, Rob Pekin, who runs Food Connect, talks about how, you know, just 10% of the people started to grow food our food system would be transformed. And that doesn't mean that 10% would have to be farmers. Even if we became part-time farmers or part-time facilitators of these kind of food systems, it would be transformed. I often encourage people to grow whatever they can, even if it's on a balcony or a windowsill or something, because the simple act of connecting with growing helps you to realise, you know, the seasons, the soil, the what it takes to grow food, to revalue the role of farmers, for example, as well, and to, to put in mind thinking, well, what is going into my food? To be asking the questions about it because I think we've been living in what, you know, what I call this pastoral fantasy. You know, you go to the store to buy a, and I know Joel Salatin talks about this too, you know, you go to the store and you, there is this, this pack of eggs and you, you know that they've come from dreadful cages and confined conditions but yet there on the packet is this picture of chickens happily roaming through some leaf <laughs> some fields of green you know it's a lie but it's there and and that's the the fantasy that we want to believe when we pick up that packet of eggs to go oh they were happy chickens and that that means it's going to be healthy food but it's not and so i think we need to uncouple ourselves from from this fantasy Chickens are a good example, too, because, you know, easy to raise chickens even in town. And uh, it's been a, a big trend here in the United States for the last, I don't know, 12, 15 years that town after town has legalized the keeping of uh, chickens. Uh, even our little city about an hour away, uh, about six or seven years ago, said, yeah, you can keep up to a dozen chickens, but no roosters. Yeah. <laughs> We have the similar thing. I don't know if the chickens ever got um, made illegal, um, the roosters, of course, but we had a situation for a while here in, in our city where it was illegal to have water tanks, um, but that's turned around now. Actually, um, they sponsor people to get water tanks because they realise that actually it helps them to manage the, the runoff and the, you know, the infrastructural development of more stormwater drainage and what to do, how to deal with it at the other end is massively reduced by encouraging people to, uh, to sort of moderate that flushes of, of the flow into the system by storing it as it's coming straight off the house. And then, of course, you've got that surplus water that you can use in your garden that's not contributing to the extraction of water through the main municipal system and all the pumps. And so, so there's been a turnaround. There's been a wake-up. Uh, you know, and it often comes with a crisis that came as a result of um, big floods and, and droughts and having to rethink it. And we are in this moment now of, of, of crisis. And I think we have a possibility to rethink so many different things. I mean, I know that 
people wanted to have chickens here in Australia. You probably had the same experience that when the when the lockdowns happened, the first rush was the toilet paper rush, the second rush was the rush on seeds, and the third rush was the rush on chickens. And so there was it was almost impossible to to get seeds or chickens to start your garden. So one of the things that I was doing uh, for a while was I did a whole series when lockdown started of these Facebook lives about okay you you want to grow food but you you can't get any seeds like how to grow things from things you could buy in the supermarket or seeds from the culinary aisle or how to sprout things that you could you know the your lentils that you would cook into soup normally you know how can you grow food from the stuff that you just normally buy in the store as food itself and that can then amplify the amount of um, food that you can get uh, you know take a few potatoes a sweet potato a turmeric a, a garlic a you know, take the bottom of the celery and sprout that and you've got greens growing right there on your desktop. Um, so there's lots of possibility, even in tiny spaces, to grow a huge amount. But chickens, chickens are, I think, a really important part of getting a thriving food system because, of course, they provide you with uh, the manure. But I was just thinking in terms of actually feeding them as well. You know, rather than having to import food, you've got food scraps, you've got the bugs from the garden, you've if you've got a worm farm processing your food scraps, you get that, you know, you get to feed some of the worms to the chickens and that's high protein and I make them up little fermented breakfasts of all different sorts of seeds and, and foods, which helps to break down. And, you know, it, you grow these grains and you ferment them and then you offer them to them and then this, they produce eggs and and uh, manure. And, and I actually throw a whole lot of stuff into their little pan and with a whole lot of mulch and, so basically they, they do the compost for me too. So there's the mulch in there, the manure and the food scraps. They scratch it all around. All I've got to do is rake it up at the end and there's my compost. So they do an enormous benefit. Having a few chickens and a small perennial garden can transform your sense of, of abundance. During the lockdown too, people would come into my garden and I would just be handing out bouquets of of cuttings that they could take home and plant in their garden and my garden didn't even notice the difference because basically it was just trimming the surplus and this is the thing about perennial plants is that you know you leave what I call them the mother in the ground and you just keep taking the the abundance the surplus leaves the shoots that come off and people ask me well how much food do you grow in your garden I have no idea how much food I grow in my garden it's it's just always food there again it's this idea of well what's the yield well the yield is like if I keep plucking my tomatoes every day they'll keep producing more tomatoes if I wait and I just have varieties that I just harvest all at one time well I can have maybe 10 kilos off that plant and then it's finished but if I just do that consistent like if I pluck a leaf then new leaves come if I pluck a tomato new, new tomato flowers come it's this you know life responds differently to how you interact so it's a beautiful thing, actually. I feel a real sense of deep security in knowing that I'm surrounded by food. It's a kind of feeling of safety that you can't buy. And it's the same too with having, you know, like I, I've designed my way of life so that I'm debt-free. You know, I built the house and, and set up this whole place in a way that um, I never took out a single loan from anywhere and what that's enabled me to do is to not only have this sense of security but also a sense of freedom of choosing the kind of work that I do without the anxiety, I suppose, of being forced to do it differently. 
Yep, that's a, that's a key part of it. I mean, and unfortunately, so many people are caught deep in the debt trap, and it's really hard to get out. Uh, my wife and I were also extremely disciplined. We had, you know, relatively modest student loans, which we paid off quickly. We each bought one car, our first cars, and then we bought one house, our first house, which we paid off in seven years. Never borrowed a penny again uh, for exactly that reason. You don't like working for a company? Tell the boss to pound sand. If uh, you know you're up to your neck in debt, you can't do that. And I have been telling uh, college grads that in a little talk I give called "My Famous Career." Uh, from time to time, don't buy shit you don't need. You know, uh, you know, because it's like a ball and chain around your foot, right? Okay, you have furniture that matches. So what, right? You're thirty thousand dollars in debt. Well, that means you can't. Do what you want to do in your life. The man owns you. Absolutely. The freedom that I've had to be able to, you know, and my family to be able to contribute where I want to, to set up, you know, all different sorts of programs and ideas and follow dreams and, and passions and ideas and to, you know, to travel as well, but not, but not to do without. I never feel like I'm doing without. My, my chairs um, come from the tip shop. And they look fantastic. You know, it's amazing what people throw out. My office table that I'm sitting at now, I think I picked up for $15 from a local um, <laughs> um, garage sale. And my mum, when I was 16, my mum and dad bought me a sewing machine uh, for my 16th birthday and a series of lessons with the seamstress down the road. If you want to, you know, have interesting clothes, or something different, you know, it's really easy to make them or upcycle something or fix things if they get a bit broken. I was, one of my skirts, I just noticed that I, it was getting a bit ripped. I, you know, you don't notice these things so much during lockdown because you're not going out and I, I've got to get mending again. But I can, you know, it's it, knowing that I, I can make, I can, I can fix stuff, I can build. Um, I designed and built this place. Before I built it, um, my husband and I had only ever built a coffee table. But we worked it out and, you know, a bit of help from our friends and our family and, you know, asking people. So you said, you know, you, you borrowed and then you paid off in seven years. So we took the other angle of going, okay, well, we'll just build in buildable, affordable modules. So we built the smallest thing you could call a house first after we'd saved a little bit of money and finished that. And then um, we built a little extra studio here, which was which has become my office. And then we eventually we connected the bit with a the middle section, which is what we call the kid pod, where their bedrooms and, and homeschooling room is. And so there's these modules. And what I like about this too is that as I got the funds, we were just able to do the next bit. And it was all livable and beautiful. The essential part of the house was there. And as it expanded, but I do lament sometimes about, you know, I loved my outdoor bath, looking up at the stars, you know, <laughs> I don't have that anymore. I'm actually thinking I might reinstate one just because I miss it so much. It's beautiful looking up and at, at the Milky Way in a beautiful bath at night time. There's something really special about that. Yeah, there certainly is. A, we had an outside shower at a, a little cottage on a lake my wife's family had up in Canada. And uh, the water was not heated, came right out of the lake. And the Canadian lake is not too warm. But you're absolutely right. There's something special about that. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it's beautiful. It's really beautiful. But anyway, so we did it bit by bit and, you know, it's it's pretty much complete. But the thing is that also being involved in the, the making of the house, 
if something goes wrong, I know how to fix it. You know, we just the other day we were fixing the gutters because, you know, they finally after 15, 20 years started to um, fall apart. We fixed that. Something, this being empowered to understand how the system works and to be able to be able to interact with it and to, to modify it and to adapt it over time I think is, is really fantastic. The other thing that's really nice that I, I love about it is um, the kitchen benches, for example, came from there was a tree in the campground at the eco-village where I live that was about to fall down. It was a bit of a threat for the campers underneath. And so they took it down and we got a mobile sawmill to come in and slab it up and we stored it under the house that we're building for about 12 months. And then when we were ready to build the kitchen, it was ready. And then we just sort of shaped it. And so the, the kitchen bench is sort of a bit informal shape, but it's beautiful. And, and I know exactly where the trees come from. Same with the veranda rail. So when you're leaning on the veranda rail, looking out across the garden, you're leaning on this piece of wood that you know where it's come from and, and how it reached you and, and who crafted it into that shape. And so the way that you interact then with this building it has a it has a life it has a depth that it's a it, the culture is emerged it's not just a, a house with manufactured products and things it is actually it's a habitat and it's been crafted and I find that deeply satisfying it hasn't cost a fortune to build it's been incredibly affordable and incredibly enriching a mindset that you had that very few people have. And that's the change that has to occur if this way of living uh, is going to really become a pattern. If we're, if we're going to save the 8 billion people on this planet, it can't just be a few of us. It's got to become a big movement. Actually, we're getting late here in time. It's been a very fascinating conversation. But before we uh, go, I'd love to dig in a little bit into uh, your uh, Crystal Waters community and uh, you know, how it came together, how it's managed, uh, you know, what some of the governance structures, some of the things that a lot of people are interested in, you know, how do you make an uh, echo village uh, or other form of non-traditional uh, living community actually work? So maybe you could start with the sort of the beginning, or at least as far back as you go with it, and uh, where the idea came from and how you do what you do there. I've been here for about 21 years, but I've been coming to this village for probably about 27. It was started in the, well, actually its roots began back in the 70s. Uh, there was a group of people that came wanting to create an intentional community, a cooperative and uh, sort of the back to the lander type community. This area is really very interesting, this whole bioregion actually, because uh, the nearest town, Mullaney, is quite remarkable. It was a dying rural town, but these back to the land, young educated people who were sort of leaving the city saying we're looking for something else came here and said, well, there's, there's not any of the food that we want to eat. There's, there's not even a bank here. There's, um, there's nowhere to meet or have fun together. There's, there's no work. And so they started creating cooperatives and it's probably one of the biggest cooperative towns outside of Mondragon. Uh, so there was um, community cooperatives, housing cooperatives. Uh, they started their own bank as a community cooperative, which still exists up in town now. The food cooperative, uh, so that's now that's still there and employs dozens of people. Started out as a volunteer thing, but anyway, Crystal Waters emerged in that whole that whole ethos of moving back to the land, finding a different way to live, 
trying to make sense of what was going on in the world in the 70s and that whole kind of shock that was happening then. And this community here at Crystal Waters, one guy, Bob Sample, his, his family owned this whole valley and he said, can I just have this little bit over here on the corner to start a community? And so that's what happened. It was the in the foothills. So up behind us we have um, National Park and State Forest and we have some quite steeply wooded slopes coming down onto a bit of a river flats at the base. And so it wasn't the best farmland which is fine for the village to start. We do have some beautiful river flats that are set aside as agriculture. But anyway, so it worked for a while and up to about 100 people came and then the whole thing just collapsed. It collapsed because there wasn't any real structure understanding about or or equity in uh, what they were calling sweat equity and people wanted to to leave. How could they get their money back from the energy they put in or the little shack that they built if there was no title on it and and it was just how did the water system work and how did the road system work it didn't really it, it just kind of was very ad hoc so a lot of people left and then but the remaining people decided to to look differently and think well what can we do they'd heard about this thing called permaculture and they said I reckon if we we design it using permaculture principles we might actually get a sense of how we can think about this landscape as a whole and manage it far better. And so they invited a team of permaculture designers in, and this is what we have now. So between 1985 and 1988, um, the design took place. And it was a big challenge because at that time, rural land uh, here in Australia, in this part of the world, uh, one house for 100 acres. So we now have 83 households living on 640 acres. So we were only really meant to be able to have six. So it took quite some time to get legal changes, planning changes. It was actually a real innovation in creating a different type of structure. So they took the strata title plan, which is looking at, well, how do things work in an apartment building? So you have your individual apartments that you own yourself, but then you have the shared thing like the lift shaft or the, the grounds around it, and then just flattened that onto a, onto a rural landscape. So what happens is we, we each have about one acre that's our own. So I have one acre that I own freehold. And this is where my house is and my main permaculture gardens wrapped around the house. And then 80% of the land is common land. Uh, so 14% is owned privately in these little spots and the rest is common. So uh, the remaining six is a cooperative. And our cooperative is where we have our village green, we have markets and music events, we have um, shared buildings which we can use to hire to do facilities, we have a shared kitchen if we want to do some kind of uh, shared cooking or meals there's regular events and cafes that happen I think that's a really key thing that we do have our own space that we can be in and the space in between us but then there's this opportunity for community which the commons I think is the really important part the commons is the forested area the commons is the river space the commons is the agricultural areas where you know, you can license a section if you want to do an agricultural activity. You know, honestly, most of the agricultural activity or food growing activity happens in and around our houses. It's remarkable how much you can actually do on one acre. I mean, I don't even use my entire one acre. Maybe half of it I use for food growing and food forests and the chickens and the house. And then the other half is a, is a wildlife zone. So I've planted a native bush tucker area that attracts beautiful, um, you know, birds. We've had this, a bird enthusiast here who 
monitors the birds and he's counted 170 species of birds. And so we plant for nature as well. We design and plant. We don't have fences around our one acre. So we have this beautiful movement of kangaroos and wallabies that just flow through the side and we design around them. Just don't put our gardens around them. I made that mistake early in the days and planted a few things up and they got um, well and truly jumped on and um, I learnt my, <laughs> learnt my lesson well to notice kangaroo pathways. I mean, actually, to protect the wildlife, we have a policy here where we don't have any cats and dogs. It's not like we don't like cats and dogs, but we notice when they come into the landscape. You can hear when a dog's come in. You can see the kangaroos fleeing to the tops of the hills. The bird sound is first. You hear the birds going off. They, they set the alarm and then everything changes. There's this tenseness that happens. We also have amazing amount of ground-dwelling birds and the rails and the quails and, and there's monitor lizards and all the life that's happening. And so what we've noticed is that in 30 years, this place has been able to regenerate um, the forest, the waterways, the community in this valley where, you know, it had been emptied out of people. The the older farms had closed down and it was really just this big open space with not much going on. So it's brought back in the life and the richness into, into this space. And the music, what, what I love about it is that so much happens, but actually with very little money changing hands. I often actually forget to take my purse with me when I go to town because mostly I don't need it down here. And thankfully, my bank is that local community bank and I walk in and I say, oh, I've done it again. And I, they'll just give me money. I don't need to even show any ID because it's all in my purse. It's at home anyway. They know you. There's the this beautiful sense of trust and community that exists there. And what, also in that local bank, often we have a bush regeneration cooperative called Barang Landcare, which is uh, linked with the Indigenous community as well. And sometimes there's trees in there. So you go in and you get some money out and you can pick up a free tree that's helping to regenerate the landscape with, with native species too. Not having fences around this space means that the bottom part of my block, that the other half that I'm not using, as well as the bush tucker plants, it's a, it's a kangaroo field. And like I said at the beginning, one of my greatest joys is actually waking up and seeing those animals just around me on a daily basis and feeling like I'm one of the species that inhabit this space. And so the way that we manage it, we have a body corporate that like any other kind of place where there's multiple people living on one property. So the body corporate's here to manage things like just the basic infrastructure, the you know, the roads and the water system. So we have two key water systems. One is we have pumps that pump from the river up into some high tanks and that gets fed down by gravity to every single household. Uh, and that's also um, for fire. So that's our fire hydrants that are around every house. And I use that water in my garden. But I actually aim not to use too much of that water because I know that it's coming from that river and I know there's platypus in the river. So I'm really conscious actually about how much of that I use. So my main priority is actually to store and collect water that falls on site. So I have at least 50,000 litres of tank storage off my house and I've designed the gardens to be terraced and to hold as much moisture in the soil as possible. So by being directly connected and seeing where your water comes from and where your wastewater goes shifts how you behave on a, on a daily basis just by knowing that your impact matters. So all the water that comes into my house, I know where it's come from, and all the water that goes out of my house, for example, goes into the landscape around me. So if I contaminate my water, 
I'm contaminating my soil, which means I'm contaminating my food and the place where my children play and the place where the kangaroos roam. And so I don't. I think carefully about what I put down the sink. And and I also think uh, in terms of living in a very dry country, I mean, I can do this here because I live in the country and it's different in a city, I know, but I have a, a composting toilet in the house. I don't have a flush toilet because if I have to think about how much water I have to collect either from the river or off the roof to flush that amount every day, it's it has an enormous impact. And then what do you do with all that water? You have to process and clean it somehow so you're pooing in water you've got to then take it out of the water again before you can release it back into the environment so we have compost toilets and then the compost just gets buried um, underneath the fruit trees or around areas that need a bit of extra nourishment not in the leafy green area obviously but anywhere else and so it's about trying to close the loops and bring the systems that we need to support us as low as possible. And basically my my key goal in moving to this place and living the way that I do is to try and demonstrate what is a one planet way of living? How can you reduce your impact by around 80% so that, you know, what is, what is it that we need to live a one planet way of life and show how you can do that um, beautifully with comfort, with looking something mostly like what most people would expect. But there's, there's differences in how where things come from how things are processed how that where the food comes from where the water comes from how you deal with the waste um, where the clothes come from um, you know how the transportation happens what how the energy happens all that basic infrastructural thing and I think that is one of the most interesting part when people come here they go oh oh so it's not really that hard one of the one of the things that when I run programs for young people, teenagers, I invite groups to come up from the city and some of them are from quite wealthy communities and um, we have this finishing circle, you know, what is it you're going to take away from your experience here over the last few days? And one kid, it stuck with me because he said, you know, I, I really had no idea there's civil, other civilizations like this so close to the city. <laughs> and this high idea that he had struck that it was another civilization that was a whole other way of being and then other kids say well you know what it's what you've shown us is actually how easy it is I can do this I'm going to go home and do this right now and I've even noticed some of the we've been teaching this same one particular school for for 20 years now and some of the kids who've come through our programs come back later on as teachers there and say what what we learned here actually changed what we were choosing we wanted to do at university. Um, it changed the type of focus that we wanted to have. And even other people have said, well, even if we, you know, we went down into engineering, but it made me think differently. Maybe it made me think that I wanted to do something that I could use engineering to help clean water, for example. And I think this is, you know, it's about adding on this shift of perception into wherever we are in our lives, whether we are in the health professions or the building profession or in the food growing profession or wherever it is that our lives um, find us, that it's this shift in perception that there are other ways of doing it that mean that we can live a one planet way of life, that we can diminish our footprint by 80% without lack, but actually a huge amount of abundance and, uh, and joy that comes from that. Sounds like a beautiful vision. Now of the uh, people that are living in your crystal waters village, 
how many of them are making a living there on the land, either by remote work or by, you know, agriculture or forestry, et cetera, versus those who work uh, off the site? That's a really good question. There's so many. There's, so there's about 250 people who live here. Some people are retirees, so they're self-employed. Um, some people are young mums, so they're, you know, they're mostly focused on education. Those of us in the in the sort of that middle sector there are many of us are now actually uh, working online as well as um, doing work in the land. So some people are in education, some people do design. There's a lot of people who make a living doing things like building timber area. So for example, when I went to build my uh, chicken house, I just walked over to the the wood lot and had a chat with the wood guy and we picked out the right trees that we thought we'd want and he tagged and we said come back tomorrow and he had them ready but that itself is not enough to to generate enough money we have to wear many hats and what we're trying to work is these clusters of enterprises so there's people who run little cafe or courses who link with the people who grow the food who offer the accommodation who do the artwork that sells in the little shop or run music classes or um, the choirs or do massage or uh, acupuncture, aromatherapy, feng shui, permaculture design. Many of us wear many hats. Um, My work I've found mostly of recent times, and particularly since I'm not doing so many face-to-face things now, is through online education. And we've just started to thread through it. We've created a community internet system, which is just actually being installed now, which will open up the doors for many more people. Some people go out, like there's a community nurse that goes out. There's someone who's a social worker. Someone works in local schools. So there's a balance of people who are going out, a balance of people are staying in, and then a number of people too who are just living a very, very quiet, simple life and choose uh, choose that as their way. Mine is kind of the opposite. I'm I'm more of the outreach kind of person, always looking to to share and speak up about this as a possibility. Because I think there's one thing actually living this way of life, but in order for this idea, as you're saying, to scale up, we need to be talking um, everywhere. So I I can see how this kind of approach can be applied. Uh, in humanitarian conditions. I can see how it can be applied to shifting our businesses. Many people are focusing now on more home-based businesses. I'm working with uh, groups who are uh, particularly setting up community farms in urban areas, so looking at creating local food enterprises. So, the, the possibilities are just endless with this, and it's really up to our imagination and our creativity and our possibilities of collaboration. Rather than being in competition, it's like saying, seeing where those little networks of possibility or those collaborations or how we can, you know, work together to create mutual aid but in an enterprise. And that seems to be what makes sense. And that's the culture of this region with the way that everything emerged in the 1970s with with the cooperative movement. And it still is at the heart. Things have changed. People are running businesses now more than cooperatives, but they have a social enterprise focus. And I think that that is really a central part of our um, culture here. Well, Marg, I'd like to thank you for a very inspiring conversation. This has been wonderful. Uh, what a wonderful way you have, you have figured out how to live and, uh, and you help other people figure it out too through your educational programs. 
and listeners. There'll be a link, as usual, on our episode page to uh, the Permaculture Educational Institute. You can learn about some of the programs that are available where you too can learn to be a permaculture person. Anyway, that's, uh, that's the end of our show. So thanks. Thanks for being on. Production services and audio editing by Jared Janes Consulting. Music by Tom Muller at modernspacemusic.com.